Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is an interesting passage, and I just have to tell you, contextually, if you were to look at the better manuscripts that we have on the Gospel of Mark, and the ones that are closest to the time of the writing of the Gospel of Mark, that verses 9 through 20 are not in the earliest manuscripts. So there are many who believe that likely it was not a part of the original gospel. Intriguing thought, and there is a shorter edition that's been added to it at the end of that, but most of the comments that we find in verses 9 through 20, we find in the other gospels. What's interesting is if Mark really did end his gospel in verse 8, kind of leaves the door open, doesn't it? So then what? Well, what I find with Mark's gospel is that if I allow myself to stop there, the challenge is to me. So what am I going to do in light of this? Am I going to be afraid? Will I be terrified to proclaim the truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? That my God came down to earth and walked as man among men, died on the cross for my sins, was buried and rose again on the third day, just as he said he would do? Or will I keep quiet? And say nothing. It's an interesting journey that I want to take with you this morning. And so if you will, turn back with me a little bit. The title of this message is Lessons from Unlikely People and Unlikely Places in Light of the Cross and Resurrection. We are going to cover some ground. We started to look at earlier in the gospel, the kingdom of God being preached. And we see starting in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel. And if you want to turn there with me, in Mark chapter 8, we have... The kingdom of God and its cost. And Jesus is going to really, what he's going to do with this passage is, he is going to overturn anything that people conceived of as being the way in which they are supposed to live their life. In other words, the kingdom of God overturns the status quo when there are so many things that Jesus is going to challenge others with and us with. And what I wanted to do was to walk through and learn some lessons from some people along the way. Maybe parts of the gospel that we would might just read through and move past and go on to the next thing and not really stop and reflect. The kingdom of God isn't merely to be something that is to provoke thought, although it can do that and should do that, nor is it merely just to encourage us or be something interesting for us to meditate on. It challenges us and it changes everything for us and it really ought to. The things that Christ has accomplished change our lives. 
And we should live differently in light of this. So what's interesting is starting in chapter 8 of Mark's Gospel, there is this section that runs from chapter 8, verse 31 through 1052, and it all revolves around passion predictions. So we find three of them in this section, but what's interesting is that on the heels of these come three exhortations or teaching sections on what it's like to be a disciple. Now, we're introduced to this in chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them about the Son of Man, that he must, this is divine imperative, that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. There's always hope in the message. It's the amazing thing about the passion predictions that Christ gives. He always includes on the third day he will rise again. There is hope in the message of the gospel. We must never forget this. We are surrounded by people in our neighborhoods and workplaces who are living hopeless lives and see no out and see no ray of hope for them as they live in this life and in this world and as the things go on and things change and things become worse. We have the message of hope for them. But this message calls from us a different kind of life. So notice verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his soul? Jesus wasn't just declaring a message, He was declaring a way of life for us. Embrace the passion, but embrace the way of the passion. In other words, Jesus is telling us that to follow Him on the way of the cross, there must be sacrifice and service. And so, in reality, all of these examples that we will see of these individuals, there is sacrifice and there is service that is manifested in their life and what they do. There is great paradox here because... We find that with the gospel, the way is of service, the way of Jesus himself. It is the way of true greatness. Greatness in the kingdom doesn't consist of status, but of service and sacrifice. So if you will turn to chapter 12 with me, we are going to find the first lesson from the first individual. And Jesus is going to point this out for us. So it's just kind of interesting. If Jesus says, hey, you need to take note of this person, it's really good for us to stop and take a note of the person, right? He's going to highlight something for us. So he's going to do this for us, and he's going to challenge us in regards to our service and sacrifice. Now, we know that when he came into Jerusalem in chapter 11, verse 1, the triumphal entry, there was much expectation. People were chanting their slogans and hailing a coming king. They were understanding that he was of the family of David, and they were hoping he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory. But they were expecting a political nationalist leader. Maybe even a violent social reformer like many are today. But their expectations were incorrect and Jesus is going to confront their superficial spirituality and their fruitlessness and the hypocrisy of their worship as He comes into the temple and He cleanses it. But not only that, but He's going to interact with the religious leaders. And in chapter 12, He is going to confront them with a parable. Parable of the fine growers. Now, I'm going to assume some things this morning. Now, you know most of these things, okay? So I'm not going to delve into all the details. But what he's going to do with this parable is he's going to confront the religious leaders and their hypocritical character. 
They understand this parable in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. They understand it refers to them. Notice chapter 12, verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So they understood what he was saying. They didn't like what he was saying. And in the parable, he is going to reveal the fact that they are going to reject the father's son, and they're going to kill him. Now what's interesting is in light of this, he's going to have these interactions with the religious leaders, but then comes this moment. Notice in chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Then he sat down opposite the treasury and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. Now here it comes. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins with a mount of a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned and all she had to live on. Mark literally says in the Greek that she gave away her life. She's a widow. She's got no one else to lean on. The religious leaders, as Jesus reveals in verse 38, notice with me, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets and who devour widows' houses and for the appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. She can't even depend on the religious leaders to provide for her. Because they take advantage of the widows and those who are destitute to fill their own pockets. But he says she gave everything she had. Sacrifice. Service. What a condemnation to these religious leaders. Jesus says this is a great example of sacrificial giving. And it contrasts those who reject and those who accept the values of the kingdom of God. And she manifested this in what she did. Was she not much like the children when Jesus said, unless you receive the kingdom, right? Unless you receive me like one of these looking at the little children, you have no place in the kingdom of God. That complete trust and dependence. Amazing because we can sort of sweep by all of this, but in the midst of all of this condemnation that was coming down on all this religiosity, there is this one widow that no one else would have noticed, but Jesus Christ saw her and said, see what she does. See, that's the way of the kingdom. So what's interesting is Jesus is going to then, because the disciples still aren't understanding the reality of the kingdom and what is happening, Jesus is going to give them a sermon, an eschatological sermon in chapter 13. Now, we're not going to walk through it, but all I want to do is highlight some things for you. In chapter 13, verse 5, he says to them, See to it that no one misleads you. This word, see to it, is to be aware, pay attention, right? So this thought and similar phrases are going to run through chapter 13. Verse 9, notice with me, be on your guard. Verse 23, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So Jesus is telling him to watch and to be vigilant. Verse 33 of chapter 13, take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 35, therefore be on the alert. Verse 36, in case he should come suddenly and you not find you asleep, which is interesting because in chapter 14, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and the disciples are going to fall asleep on him. 
But notice how he ends chapter 13, verse 37. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Now, if I could sum up all of these statements, it's simply just keep your eyes peeled for what God is doing, right? So here comes the next episode, the next lesson, lesson number two. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and to kill him. This is chapter 14, verse 2 now. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, and reclining, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial, poured it over his head, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why is this perfume being wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in the memory of her. Amazing, isn't it? It's interesting that in Mark's gospel, he mentions 15 different women in a total of 20. 22 times in, in the Gospels, and including, he mentions Jesus' sisters. 15 of the 22 mentions of women appear in positive context. They always play prominent roles in Mark's Gospel, and they receive the highest praise. There are only two sandwiches, and I call them sandwiches, but they're chiastic structures, but they're sandwiches. There are two sandwiches that Mark puts women in. The first one is Jairus and the healing of Jairus' daughter, the woman with the issue of blood. If you go read chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, you'll see it there. The next one is this one here. So notice what the context is. 14.1, we have the Passover, right? The unleavened bread. Notice chapter 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, right? So bracketing is the Passover. We have the plot to kill Jesus by the religious leaders in verse, verses 1 and 2. And then we have a plot to kill Jesus, and this is Judas. In verse 10 of chapter 14, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them, and they were glad when they heard this. Right in the middle of this is the woman who anoints Jesus for his burial. Pay attention. Don't miss what God is doing in your life. Don't miss the moment. On the heels of, of Mark calling this to our attention, be on the alert, be aware of what's happening here. There was one person in this room who really got what was going on. All the rest of them were consumed with something else. She saw the moment and she came in with this beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. This was something that was rare. It was a perfume made in India and the Greeks and Romans understood it well. Likely it was an heirloom. It was extracted from the hills on the banks of the Ganges River. Mark refers to it as being genuine. In other words, it was not imitation or was it polluted, and it was very costly. 
This was an intense, fervent devotion. Notice, she came in, she broke it open, and she poured it over his head. Everyone sitting there at the dinner table, reclining, watching what's happening. And she walks in the room and does this. Now, what's interesting about Mark is he likes to mention names. But did you notice when reading through this, her name was not given? Why? Because he wants us to see the heart and the devotion. The name isn't the issue. It's what she did is the issue. This was an act of intense, fervent devotion without giving thought to what others would think. How many times we find ourselves holding back? We see a moment to do ministry. We see God open a door and we have an opportunity to respond, but we hold back because we're afraid of what other people are going to say to us. They might not understand the moment, right? They might not get what's happening, but you see, you understand, and the Lord's moving your heart to go and do something, and you hold back because you're afraid of what they may say. Oh, and they spoke. <laughs> they were indignant, and this is strong indignation. They weren't silent. They didn't internalize it. They openly rebuked her for this. I had this thought in light of this. Sometimes we overthink the moment that we miss the moment. So often, right, God provides a moment for us, and, and it doesn't have to be much. Maybe you're pumping gas at the gas station, filling up your car, right, you're daydreaming, and all of a sudden someone sparks a conversation, and there's an opportunity. And sometimes we overanalyze things, and we miss the time that God is doing something, and sometimes we will get the least expected responses from the least expected people. It's two-sided thought in this passage. But here's what's interesting to me about this. They understood the cost, right? This thing could have been sold for how many denarii, right? And then we could have given the money to the poor. They understood the cost, but they did not realize the value. Don't be so consumed with the cost that you miss the value had a brother come to me, and, and there was an open door for ministry, and he came, and he was sharing. He was excited, and he knew this was going to meet some needs in that. And, but it's interesting because he came into the conversation so excited and fired up. By the time we walked out of the conversation near the end, man, he was not so excited anymore. But it was interesting because as he talked about this opportunity for ministry, and he knew that it was going to benefit people, and there was going to be great value in it. He could not handle the cost. Man, if I do this, then I can't back out once I start this thing, and then it's going to be dependent on me, and I can't get away from it, and, and then it's going to take up all these hours of my time and prayer and everything else and effort and energy and all of this stuff, and it's going to consume all of this stuff. And before he knew it, he was so consumed with the cost, he missed the value. So often we look at something that God puts before us to do and we look and we think this is going to cost way too much. And we fail to see the value of it, the fact that it is for the kingdom of God. That it has eternal ramifications. Jesus is going to defend this act by, by her and he, he said that she had done a beautiful thing, verse 6. He uses the word kalos in Greek which indicates the fact that this posed a true moral beauty and she would be remembered for this. 
She appears to be the first person in Mark's gospel that understood that the gospel involves suffering. She understood what Jesus was going to go through. The other disciples didn't get it yet. They didn't want to get it. She did. And it's interesting that in Mark's gospel, this is the last time that the word gospel is uttered by Jesus Christ. That she would be remembered wherever in the world the gospel is preached. This woman's actions would be remembered. Quickly we go past these things. So often we go by them and we don't stop to think about them. The Last Supper, chapter 14. I give you this. And Jesus has the disciples prepare the the Last Supper for him. In verse 17, he's going to give them this prediction of betrayal. And again, it's dealing with Judas. And when the evening came, he came with with the twelve. And as they were reclining, chapter 14, verse 18, as they were reclining and they were eating, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, Surely not I. He reveals that it's going to be Judas, although he doesn't call him out by name. What's interesting is that at the end of this section, we also have this prediction of betrayal. So verse 26 of chapter 14, After singing a hymn... <laughs> It's a glorious moment, right? They went out of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You all are going to fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Now, if you notice, in chapter 14, verse 50, when those come to take Jesus away from the garden, chapter 14, verse 50, it says this, And they all left him and fled. Split. Jesus knew it was coming. Here's what's interesting, that in the middle of this, we have the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. There's the meat right there in the sandwich. It's amazing truths. What's interesting to me is that in verse 12, we have the preparation for the Passover. And Jesus is going to send his disciples, verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he said to them, And he himself will show you in a large room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. Then the disciples, verse 16, they went out and they came to the city and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And all of the predictions of betrayal and everything and how he's going to walk alone because he's going to walk alone in this. This was a dark time for Jesus. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he tells Peter, James, and John to keep watch. And he says to them, verse 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch for me. They couldn't. They fell asleep. Jesus was going to go through all of this stuff alone. He is surrounded by betrayal. Not just Judas, but all of them are going to run away. I'm just going to say to you this morning, there might be someone sitting next to you who's going through a very deep, dark time in their life. Maybe they're surrounded by betrayal. Maybe their life has been pulled out from under them. Here's the beautiful truth. Jesus declared this is the way it's going to go. He was in control of everything that was happening around him. He orchestrated the circumstances. He was in control of his own darkness as he walked through this. And yet he was surrendered to the will of the Father. But here's what's amazing. Jesus walked alone through all of this stuff so that you and I would never have to do that. If you walk walk through Mark's gospel in the last few chapters, 
we're going to find Jesus Christ alone, 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 alone. But he did that so you and I would never have to do that. You never walked alone. You realize that? No matter how dark the day, no matter if it seems like everyone around you is turning their back on you, he never will. He moves then to the garden and the king is arrested, verses 32 through 52. We have the king on trial in chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. The king denied by Peter in 1466 through 72, and I am assuming you all know all of these events. The king and the governor, chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. This is important because now he's before Pilate. Verse 2, Pilate is going to question him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said to him, It is as you say. There is no doubt that in this chapter, Mark wants us to understand that the trial and crucifixion was a royal enthronement of Jesus as the Messiah. This was a kingdom like no other. This wasn't a physical, political kingdom. This wasn't a nationalistic kingdom. This was something radically different. It was spiritual. But the fact that he was referred to as king, that is true. Couldn't deny that. The crucifixion's revelation of his kingship and the royalty references run all the way through here, but this starts it off in 15.2. And from here on out, this is the theme that runs through this whole entire section. In chapter 15, verses 16 through 21, notice with me, our verse 20. The soldiers took him away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort, and they dressed him in purple, and they were twisting a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down before him. And after they mocked him, they took purple robe from him and put on his own garments and they led him out to be crucified. This is not how a coronation goes. But this is a different kind of kingdom. This is a different way of life. It isn't just for us to profess this. We need to live it. Jesus said, come follow me. He sets the path. He's the leader. We're the followers. And he's shown us the clear way to victory, to triumph, to glory. Before the crown, there must be the cross. The crucifixion and burial then comes in chapter 15, verses 21 through 47. The crucifixion is interesting in, in Mark's gospel, and I just do this for you because Jesus, again, is completely alone. He doesn't even have allies with those who are being crucified with him. Notice chapter 15, verse 32. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. We're always looking for the empirical evidence, aren't we? Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. They had no one to go through this with. All the disciples had left him. Peter denied him. 
He's on the cross, and not only is this excruciating painful, but this is shameful, this is scandalous, this is socially degrading. Not even a Roman citizen would be crucified. You don't do this to someone who's a Roman citizen. It isn't even mentioned on the lips of a Roman citizen. To even speak of crucifixion is unheard of. And for the Jew, one who hung upon the tree is cursed, is he not? Shame and insult is the focus in Mark's gospel, going back to chapter 14, verse 65. And when it began, they began to spit on him, and they blindfolded him, and they beat him with their fists, and they said to him, prophesy, and the officials received him with slaps in the face. Mockery from the beginning to the end. You have the mocking of the religious leaders, the mocking of the soldiers, the mocking accusation of the sign that's posted in 1526. You have the mocking of the bystanders in verses 29 through 30. You have the mocking of the religious leaders, the mocking of those who were also crucified. There was no one with him. He was all by himself. And not only that, but how Mark composes this and he lays it out for us. We have Simon of Cyrene who's going to take up the cross and carry it. And at the end, we're going to have the centurion. And he's going to confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? Chapter 15, verse 39. I, I got to tell you this. The only individuals were divine who declared the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. You had God the Father, and then you had the unclean spirits who acknowledged Him as being the Son of God. So here you have the spiritual realm declares this, right? The beginning of Mark's gospel. You have the dark and the light side within the spiritual realm, right? The Father and unclean spirits. There is not one mention from the disciples that He is the Son of God. Not one of them confessed this. Jesus alludes to it, but He doesn't even declare this directly in Mark's Gospel. The first human being to declare that He is the Son of God is a Roman centurion. The one who is head of the detail. <laughs> this is a confession of faith. Now, I just tell you, note of interest, Simon of Cyrene, mentioned to be the father of Alexander and Rufus. If you read Acts 16, 13, or Romans 16, 13, Romans 16, 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus and his mother, who is also mine. Simon of Cyrene's son, Rufus, was a part of the church of Rome. More than likely, Simon of Cyrene came to Christ as a result of this moment. His son was a part of the church in Rome. His wife was a part of church in Rome. Somehow she had a, a relationship with Paul, cared for him likely as he was on his missionary journeys or what have you. She treated him like a mother. And she says, so greet Rufus and his mother and my. Can you imagine the conversations at that table? Right? Someone who came from the religious leaders who helped put Christ to death and the wife of Simon, Cyrene, and Rufus. So this is it, right? He sets this whole scene up. Notice the parallelism that runs through here. And then here in the midst of all of this, he has a robber on each side of him and the mockers passing by and the mocking religious leaders. And this is where he hangs all on his own. You know, we have crosses that we wear on our necks and our earrings and all these kinds of things. And it isn't bad to do that, but sometimes we fail to realize the severity of what Christ went through. 
And not only that, but the insults that assailed him, the mockery that assailed him while he hung upon the cross, going through all of this agony. And he shows us a different way in which we do things. This is not man's way. This is God's way. Because notice the events in Jesus' life, and especially when he's on the cross, he utters no self-defense, no effort to get even, or even to get in the final word. How many times do we do that when we're sharing our faith and we get into a discussion with someone and we want to have the last word in the argument? No attempt to preserve at least one modicum of dignity or pride. We live in a society that keeps crying out, you have your rights, fight for your rights, fight for your rights, fight for your rights. Are we really walking the way of Jesus Christ? The burial comes in 1540 through 47. And I do this for you. This is another sandwich that comes. We have the women and his death in Golgotha in chapter 15, verses 40 and 41. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came with him from, to Jerusalem. This is amazing to me because it's these women who are going to come to the tomb at the end. They're going to be the ones who announce, right? They're going to be the first ones to see the tomb is empty. Not the 12. Not the 12. They're all gone. The men hightail it. There's one that shows up on this scene. You know who that is? Joseph of Arimathea. It's interesting if you notice verse 44. I'll start in 43. Joseph of Arimathea came, prominent member of the council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage. This was not an easy thing to do. He gathered up courage and he went before Pilate. See, normally someone who was crucified, they're not buried in a tomb. They're not given such rights. Oftentimes they would have mass graves. They would just throw the bodies in there. So he's going to go before Pilate and he's going to request the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. Summoning the centurion, the one who just confessed that he was the son of God. He questioned him whether or not he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. There are three people that acknowledge the fact that Jesus actually died. Thus then he actually rose from the dead. Pilate, the centurion, who confessed him to be the Son of God, and Joseph of Arimathea. Two of those witnesses actually held the body. The centurion and Joseph of Arimathea. Look at the devotion that this man had and the love and care he had for our Savior. Verse 46, Joseph bought linen and he, linen cloth and he brought it and he took him down. He wrapped him in linen cloth and he laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Such gentle care at the end of his life. Jesus had no 401k. He had no retirement fund. He had no plot that he purchased waiting for his burial. He had nothing. Joseph wasn't going there saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill Isaiah 53. He did, though, but that's not why he went. He went out of complete devotion. 
And just like the woman with the alabaster jar, he understood the cost. <laughs> this is why he had to encourage himself, right? He had to strengthen himself to go in, to get up courage to go and confront Pilate and ask him for the body. You don't do this kind of thing. What devotion that he had is he saw the value in what was taking place. The cost was worth it. Well, what's interesting is that it provides a connection for these women because they are present at the crucifixion, they're present at the burial, they're also then present at the empty tomb. So therefore we find that they saw him die, they saw him buried, and they saw the same empty tomb together. What's amazing is the description of these women in 1541, that they followed Jesus from the beginning. Not all of their names are given here, and it's interesting that Mark always mentions Mary Magdalene first, so maybe she was the leader of the bunch. But these women, notice this, these women followed Jesus all the way from Galilee, all the way to Jerusalem, from the very beginning of his ministry. Mark says they followed and ministered to Jesus, encompassing the duration of his entire ministry. The imperfect tense in the Greek tells us this. This wasn't occasional or sporadic. This was a continued presence in service. You had the 12 who were selected out of all of the disciples. They were the ones, right? And they're going to be the ones who sit on the thrones, right? But then you had these women who followed him from the beginning, just as the 12 did. They ministered to him, they ministered to the twelve. In Luke 8, we see that out of their own pockets, they provided for them financially for food and all of the things that we needed because they were itinerant in their ministry. They were traveling all over the countryside. They followed him from the very beginning. And so Mark wants us to see this is what true discipleship is, following and serving. And it doesn't matter if anyone knows your name. Understand this, you may not be a Paul, a Peter, a Joseph of Arimathea. Your name might not even be put down in the annals of any kind of human history. But you are as important as all the rest of them are. There are no little people in God's eyes. No insignificant ones. Everyone is unique. Everyone has their place. Everyone has their role. Doesn't matter if we know their names or not. It's the life they live that matters, right? So then they come, dawning of a new day, in more ways than one. The sun is risen, S-U-N. The sun is risen, S-O-N. The women come, and here they're asking the question, Verse 3, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of this tomb? You know that Mark is the only one who records this conversation with the women? We were prepared for this. Why are they asking this question? Because all the men are gone. They all left. Here's the women going to the tomb going, how are we going to move this stone? But they didn't ever consider the possibility Verse 4, looking up, they saw the stone had already been rolled away, although it was extremely large. God did it. God moved the stone for them. They didn't even consider that as a likely possibility, right? <laughs> no men are here. How are we going to do this, right? 
And here they are standing in this empty tomb, and now the literal gospel comes, right? He's not here. He is risen. They hear the first presentation of the gospel message in an empty tomb. (laughs) Not the twelve. Not these spectacular men, right? Who have done miracles and everything else. No, they all left. It's these women. It's these women. But I just have to say this. It isn't the empty tomb that proves the resurrection. It's the resurrection that makes the empty tomb meaningful. The question we have to ask ourselves is, how will we respond? They ran away, afraid, scared. We're told they didn't go tell anybody. How will we respond? You know, the amazing thing is that God works with us with all of our failures. How will we respond to a world that keeps telling us to be quiet? We have a world that won't even acknowledge when we have six believers killed, they won't even put it on the news. That's not their concern. It's the transgender community is their concern. Not the people that were killed. And definitely not because they're Christians. We have brothers and sisters who are dying all over the world and the news will never report it. The world keeps telling us to be quiet, to say nothing, but we have the hope (laughs) and we have the message they need to hear. Let's go out and tell the world He has risen. Amen. Let's pray. Robert, would you close in a word of prayer, brother?